This winter, I think I'm going to put a sign up at the end of my driveway. If you find any ice that I haven't gotten rid of, I'll pay you to tell me where it is. But I'm going to lay some rules down first. You can only do the left side of my driveway because people might be coming and going from the right side of my driveway and we don't want to bug them. You can't make a lot of noise. I don't want to disturb anyone in the house or the neighbors. And you're not allowed to dig anything up or move things around too heavily. That means no bringing your own ice, no bringing a pick, no going way too hard for this. Just look for some ice. I know, they're kind of crazy rules, but if you follow them and tell me where I missed a spot, well, I'll make it worth your time depending on how big of a patch of ice you find. I'm John Cordes, and this week, I'm posting a bounty for ice removal. After all, it's pretty dangerous to leave it ignored. And I want you to think about that concept for just a little bit, keep it in the front of your head, because I'm going to explain to you what the shell, a bug bounty, is, how people make a living off of it, and talk to you about some of the biggest bug bounties that have ever been paid out. Okay, so you're probably thinking to yourself, John, what was that intro? What are you talking about? And some of you might have a bit of an idea what a bug bounty is, but I'm going to take a minute here to explain it before we get started into some interesting bits about them. No, we're not hunting insects. Think of it as a way to have constant security testing being done without involving your own internal resources until it gets to fixing the problem. The idea is that websites, applications, and companies can post out the quote, bounties, that will give you an idea of what's being looked for and what you can do to help make their applications safer. This is a call to action for hackers, or in this case, bounty hunters. The end result is that the ethical hacking community at large will be looking at your stuff, trying to find ways to exploit it, but doing so in a controlled environment. You, the company, can then take that information that they submit and apply security changes to make sure your environment is safe, secure, and protected. This is going to do a few things for you. First, until someone finds a vulnerability or exploit, you're not paying anything. I don't get paid to look at the application or the website, I just get paid if I find a problem in it. So say you've got dozens of people looking at an application and they haven't found anything wrong in one or two days. That's hundreds of work hours of testing being done against you, where potentially nothing has been found. And in this case, that's maybe validating that you're at least in a decent position when it comes to external attacks. The big X factor here is that the quality of the individual doing the testing isn't always known. Second, the payout that might be given is fluid. It's usually included in some level of range. Most industries will have a lower payout for stuff that might just cause little problems, but pay out much higher for things that result in complete ownership of the tool or your system. It's like a sliding scale of pay, depending on how serious it is. So now picture this. One major problem is found that someone spent quite a bit of time on. They've spent hours and hours researching and they get a payout of $3,000. Maybe they even spent a couple hours a day for two or three weeks on this one. The company might be happy to pay that out as opposed to paying an internal engineer full pay and benefits for the same amount of time. So. Overall, again, they're pretty net positive in terms of funding. And for that example, $3,000 was just a random number that I gave. There's a wide range of payouts that we'll get to a little bit later. The cart's being put just a bit before the horse right now. Because before you even think 
about doing any kind of bug bounty hunting, you have to know the rules. Like I laid out at the start of this, I put out rules for what you can and can't do in my driveway. Oftentimes, the application owners don't want you testing against the actual live website or tool. For example, if I'm trying to break something like Shopify and I succeed, obviously they don't want me to knock over the website and break everyone's store. Or even worse, have access to all their shop data and customer information. So, to give you a safe environment to do this, companies will often set up separate areas for you to do this kind of testing. Those areas won't be used with the live application, but maybe a dev version or a beta build, something that, if it goes down, it's not going to cause major problems. And those typically will have separate domain names. So, if I was going to host one for my website for a podcast, I might name it something like test.whattheshellpod.com instead of just whattheshellpod.com. And no, that's not a real place, but if it was, I would have test.whattheshellpod.com redirect to an entirely different server. So now I've set up this, let's call it an arena, for you to battle in, right? I've given you the stage, I've given you the directions on how to get there, now you just need to know what the rules are for when you go inside. I'll start by listing out what you can't do. You can't fish my employees, because that's not a code or an application problem. I don't want you doing any kind of denial of service attack either. Don't just flood me with requests, because anyone can do that. And it doesn't result in a loss of information unless you permanently destroy the server somehow. And I don't want you using commercial vulnerability scanners against my website, because I have those and I can do that on my own time. Lastly, I don't want you to do an attack against password strength, because again, the password strength is not what's being graded here. We're looking for flaws in the application, not in the process and not in the people. So the stage is set. I've given you a place, I've given you a rules, I've told you how to get there. Another thing that I'll do is tell you how to act inside the ring. You know, the rules for how you can attack. I told you what you can't do, now I'll tell you what I'd like you to do. You'll send a report with a specific template or for a specific application. You won't publish any of the information you find publicly until after we do. Only test against your account, not anyone else's. I also don't want you to be an active employee in the company that you're testing because maybe you would just purposely code in some vulnerabilities. And putting all of this together that we've talked about so far, this is what is oftentimes referred to as the scope of an attack or the scope of a test. And as I'm talking about this, I do have a thought that maybe I'll go back to before publishing the episode and try to tack it on the end. If not, I'll bring it up in the Discord. But I do wonder if there has ever been some level of fraud where an internal developer purposely codes in vulnerabilities that pay out maybe an okay amount so that a friend or an acquaintance can go claim it. I'm going to have to look into that one because it certainly seems like something someone who isn't very smart would do. Anyways, I think you've got the basic principles of the idea. I'm basically offloading extra security testing on top of what I'm already doing to the world. But they just need to follow my guidelines before they get paid. And speaking of pay, let me tell you what some of the ranges of bigger sites can be. I've got a few different bug bounty programs up right now, and I can tell you that in US dollars, Robinhood will pay you up to $37,000. OpenSea, that's S-E-A, an NFT platform can pay you anywhere between $25 and $3 million. Shopify, they'll go between $500 and $100,000.
That's just $500, not $500,000. And Vimeo, the video platform, they'll go anywhere from $100 to $6,000. So there's a wide gap here, and you can kind of see how it's prioritized based off of the potential fiscal impact or the service that's being used. Like, Vimeo is important, but it might not suffer as much compared to Shopify or OpenSea if it get fully compromised. So this picture, this painting that we're working on is starting to come together. You're going to get paid based around the kind of vulnerability you find, the kind of damage it can do, how easy it is to do. It all culminates in either a nice little paycheck for you or nothing at all, because maybe someone else got to it first. But now that we've got a good idea of what this is, let's put a pin in some of this and come back to the funds and the money later, because I wanna talk about how this concept came to be. The easy answer is criminals, right? As long as exploits have been developed, and even before then, there have been people willing to pay to have an upper edge. For a long time, it was mainly a thing in the black hat community where a hacker could buy an exploit kit, malware, or details on a vulnerability that might not be known to the public, and use it to either cause damage or try to make even more money. And it goes beyond hacking too, right? Robberies, fraud, paying a little bit to get that extra edge so that when you commit the crime you're trying to do, you can do it perfectly. Because in the end, you'll get more out of it. And I want you to think about how long you've been working with computers, what you know about computers, and what we've talked about so far, and ask yourself, when do you think the first bug bounty was put out? I'm going to talk about the first two high-profile bug bounties, and I'm asking you, I'm really asking you, what year do you think it was? And you know what? Let's do this. I'll even sweeten the deal a bit. In the description of this episode, I've got my Twitter link and the Discord link. In the episode discussion on Discord, or just tweeting me at shell underscore pod, send what year you think it was for either of the first two bug bounties. I'll toss all the names of the people that get it right into a list and pick someone to get a free sticker pack. Pause the episode and do it right now if you want to be ethical. Keep listening and do it later if you want to be unethical. Honestly, I don't care. I'm just doing a giveaway for the sake of a giveaway here. Alright, are you done? Great, because now I'm going to take you all the way back to 1983. Yep, 40 years ago. Because that's when Hunter and Reddy launched what has been pretty well agreed to be the first bug bounty. Although it wasn't really called a bug bounty at the time. What did they even do? What could they have done 40 years ago? And what did they pay? Well, honestly, it was a pretty insane deal and a well-marketed strategy. The ad read at the very top, quote, get a bug if you find a bug. And no, they weren't going to send you a centipede. You see, Hunter and Reddy designed the first real-time operating system that was used in the Volkswagen Beetle. You know, a bug. They were putting out a bounty for finding a bug in that system, that real-time operating system. In fact, let me just read some parts of the ad so that you can see what they put in as the quote, scope, here. And side note, I do have the full picture of the ad posted on my website at whattheshellpod.com. It's going to be in the episode transcript, just scroll a little bit down and you'll see it. I really encourage you to go take a look at the ad because I think it's pretty awesome. I'll probably post it on Instagram too. But here we go. In the ad, they said, quote, show us a bug in our VRTX real-time operating system and we'll return the favor with a bug of your own to show off in your driveway. There's a catch, though. 
Since VRTX is the only microprocessor operating system completely sealed in silicon, finding a bug won't be easy. It went on to ask you to describe your application and the microprocessors that you're using, and we'll send you a Vertex evaluation package including the timings for system calls and interrupts. And when you order a Vertex system, we'll include the instruction for reporting errors and how to report these bugs. Don't feel bad if in a year there isn't a bug in your driveway, because there isn't one in your operating system either. That was bold, that was in your face, it was a call to action, and who wouldn't want a free car, right? It was very popular. Unfortunately, I couldn't really find anyone who was able to say that they claimed a bug out of this, so it turns out that Hunter and Ready might have been right on this. But it's a cool story. It kind of reminds me of some of those times that you would see stories about the 80s and 70s and people saying, last one with her hand on the car gets to take the car home. Except, this is kind of like the technical version of it. It's still a bit of a far cry from what we've got going on today, though, so let's move it forward to the second program, the one that's coined the term, Bug Bounty. We're going to move forward 12 more years to 1995, back in the days when the graphically rendered internet that we all know and love was still in its infancy. Back then, you would probably log into your internet service provider's proprietary internet browser, something like AOL 5.0 or Netscape Navigator. In fact, the story that I'm about to tell you is about Netscape Navigator 2.0. Because back in 1995, their vice president of marketing explained why they were putting out a bug bounty for a 2.0 version of a tool. And he said, quote, By rewarding users for quickly identifying and reporting bugs back to us, this program will encourage an extensive open review of Netscape Navigator 2.0. And it'll help us to continue to create products of the highest quality. It should be noted that this was for the beta of a program, so you had to opt in, you couldn't use the live version, which, you know, we've discussed already, and it wasn't a permanent fixture. But it did well, and they ended up rewarding some cash prizes out at the end of the event. Unfortunately, this attempt at building a new trend was a little bit early and was tough to catch on, as most other software developers wanted to keep it in-house and just kind of shook their heads at the prospect of doing something like that. In the grand scheme of things, I don't think it really would last very long, because in the early 2000s, as things really started heating up with websites, forums, and general acceptance that the internet was a mainstream part of day-to-day -day life, bug bounty programs, and both the wanton need for them, were starting to waterfall out into the world. And I do remember this time firsthand. There were a lot of forums, for example, that were vulnerable to cross-site scripting attacks basically attacks where you could load something straight into the forum post, and whoever loaded that page would be presented with the exploit. Typically, it was more of a nuisance than anything, but that's just one of them. There's also the copious amounts of vulnerabilities that were exposed to things like LimeWire and file sharing tools. It was so, so easy to spread malware back then that I don't blame a lot of companies for starting to want to maybe offload some work and get low-cost, high-reward pieces of information. Here are some of the biggest platforms that would start up in the early 2000s. iDefense, a security intelligence firm that launched a program back in 2002. In 2004, Mozilla Firefox, you know, major player in the browser industry, started a program that offered up to $500 if you could identify a critical level vulnerability. In 2007, there was a first-ever Pwn2Own contest. That's a contest that was done by regular researchers that were frustrated that Apple had no disclosure information help or policy. 
2010 saw Google enter the game, and 2011 saw Facebook. From there, companies like GitHub, Etsy, major online retail, they all started to get in on this as well, each offering their own incentives for finding bugs in their tools. Hell, even airlines were sometimes offering airline miles, and they still do this today instead of cash in some places, but airlines were offering miles if you could find vulnerabilities. So you could theoretically hack your way to a free trip. And some of you might be thinking to yourself that, wow, okay, so there are more and more coming out there, but how do I find them? How did people keep track of all this? Because as it gets more and more popular, you're going to have more and more websites. And everyone's obviously going to want to go for the big names. So why would I even bother to attempt to do that? A need started to pop up. It was getting to a point where there were a lot of possible bounties and finding the right one could take some time. You would go from company to company looking to see if they had a policy or maybe even reaching out to them directly to see what they had. There was a gap. And what filled this gap was the rise of an intermediary, a site that you would submit the bounty through and that would work on your behalf with the vendors to fix it and go through the whole process. They were essentially operating as middlemen. But in exchange, you had one big handy list of all the different places that they were contracted to work through. Let's start with one of the bigger and earlier ones called the Zero Day Initiative. I've actually referenced the Zero Day Initiative before because they've found some of the exploits that I've actually talked about on the show. They began back in 2005, and this is a small snippet of their mission statement. The Zero Day Initiative, or ZDI, was created to encourage the reporting of zero-day vulnerabilities privately to be affected vendors by financially rewarding researchers. At the time, there was a perception by some in the information security industry that those who find vulnerabilities are malicious hackers looking to do harm. Some people still feel that way. While skilled malicious hackers do exist, they remain a small minority of the total number of people who actually discover new flaws in software. Think about back to the early episodes that I did about Kevin Mitnick, and apply a little bit of context here. The Zero Day Initiative is right. People did inherently think that if you were looking for vulnerabilities in order to make them safer, you were still trying to do harm and you were still a criminal, even if it resulted in them being safer at the end of the day. Anyways, the way this program worked is that researchers that were interested in participating provide information on previously unpatched vulnerabilities. ZDI would then take that and the information they can get to validate the identity of the attacker and try to replicate it so that they can confirm the issue exists outside of the attacker's environment. Then, they'll offer the researcher money for the details and rights to that vulnerability, acting almost like a fence if you've ever watched any kind of art heist movie. Zero Day Initiative is still insanely popular as a platform today. I read them almost daily, and every month they post a roundup of the Microsoft security updates, and they'll let you know when a big security hole that was found was pushed through their program. It's a really great read and gives a lot of context to what's actually bugging you when you're being told to update yet again. And when they do reward you, their payout is based on some pretty simple criteria that I'm going to add a little bit of context to. First, is the affected product widely deployed? That one is pretty self-explanatory. Something that's on Windows 10 Home Edition is probably more valuable than something that's on a random Linux distribution that's got less than 20,000 installs. Number two. Can exploiting the flaw lead to a server or client compromise? At what privilege level? So basically, am I able to move from the application into the actual computer or system itself? And if I'm doing that, am I just a regular old user? Or am I doing so at maybe an administrator level? Number three, is the flaw exposed in default configurations and installations? 
So in that case, basically, if it is, it's going to be impacting many, many different systems because that's saying that it's installed in whatever the gold standard is. And if not, it might just be involved in some maybe unique one-off situations. A good example of that is a vulnerability that was called Baron Same Edit or Baron Same Edit. Frankly, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, but it was a vulnerability in the sudo tool for Linux from a few years ago. And it required a non-standard configuration, but if you had it, it was an insanely easy attack to perform that would just let you run whatever you wanted at the root level. You know, the administrator level. But again, it was a non-standard configuration, so that meant that inherently a lot of people were not exposed to it right off the bat, despite how present sudo is on Linux systems. Number four, are the effective products high value? So is it something like a database or maybe a finance server? And lastly, does the vulnerability require a social engineering component, like clicking a link, visiting a site, connecting to a server? Remember, a lot of companies don't really consider that a part of bug bounties, so social engineering typically doesn't do much for the value of an exploit. This all adds up to their secret sauce for payouts, which can technically be enhanced. They seem, I'm looking at the site right now, and they have bonuses for things like referrals or continued reporting. Things that will keep you with them, because as I'm about to show you, there is a little bit of competition. In the early 2010s, two other platforms were created that started a bit of an arms race in the field. One was called Bug Crowd, and another Hacker One. That's one word. Bug Crowd started in 2011 in Sydney, Australia, and Hacker One started in 2012 with its headquarters in San Francisco. These two companies are effectively increasing the accessibility for people to participate in bug bounty programs by making them easy to access and easy to comb through and really honing in on the different niches of bounty hunting. They operate, again, by reaching out to these major companies, getting them onboarded with their platform and with their programs, and then being the middlemen for the bounty programs that are now custom tailored to the exact needs of the company. HackerOne serves companies like Uber, Spotify, Starbucks, Lufthansa, and more. BugCrowd has just as impressive of a list including companies like Twilio, Atlassian, and HP. Now, I've talked a little bit about it already, and I'm sure you're still thinking about it, but some of you might be thinking about the payouts. So let's talk a little bit about that. I'm going to tell you about some big payouts, about what average payouts look like, and some different examples of when companies just paid a lot of money. In 2017, Oaf, which is a media and tech company that owns things like Yahoo, AOL, Verizon, TechCrunch, and a lot more brands, they participated in an event that was held by HackerOne called H1415. At the event, the internal security team partnered with hackers from over 11 different countries to do a day of hacking on all their different sites. Their goal was to find and claim as many bounties as possible in a single day. And all in all, at the end of it, $400,000 was paid out in just nine hours that day. One day, $400,000, nine hours of work, and who knows how many different security holes fixed. Back in 2012, Microsoft paid $200,000 to one group of researchers as a part of its Blue Hat competition, aimed at security mitigation. Bringing it forward a little bit more recently, here are some of the top payouts from the end of 2020. These ones being individual payouts, so payouts for one vulnerability. Verizon's top bounty, $70,000. PayPal, $30,000. Uber had a $50,000 payout, and these are all decent. In fact, for many people, they're a year's wage, or at least a chunk of one. But these kind of high-profile payouts aren't always guaranteed. These are just the smartest and the best hackers going after the biggest hitting payouts that they can try for. A lot of times they'll be dedicated to just this one particular area. 
That's not to say that you can't go higher, though, because there are some what I'm calling whale-level payouts, some that have been claimed and some that are still up in the air. We talked a little bit about Apple earlier, and I mentioned that they came under flack for not participating. Well, recently, they paid out a student $100,500 for a webcam bug that he had found. The bug could have impacted millions of users and gained access to their own account information, including the webcam itself. But that's not to say that that's the height of bug bounties. If you want to get the best of the best in terms of payouts from Apple, they offer some bounties that offer a minimum of $100,000 and a maximum of $1 million for payouts. That category is reserved for the worst of the worst kind of vulnerability. A zero-click admin-level takeover of a device. Essentially, this is when a hacker needs no interaction from you at all. You just need to receive whatever the payload is. And in some cases, it can be as simple as receiving a text. You have no control. And then, boom, suddenly they own your device. And you might not even realize it. The reason why they would pay so much for this is because, frankly, a nation-state like Russia, China, or really anyone would probably pay more under the table for this than Apple would pay up front. It's only happened a handful of times where these vulnerabilities were found in the wild, but almost always it's tied back to major, major powers. Apple's $1 million payout also has potential bonuses. It goes up to 50% more for beta software vulnerabilities and 100% more for bypassing the new lockdown mode that they have. That means there's a maximum $2 million payout if you zero-click bypass a locked-down device. Which sounds a lot easier when I say it out loud, but boy, I would love to maybe see one of those one day, as long as it's fixed as soon as it's reported. It does get higher, though, because now I want to talk about the record for the biggest payout. This record is currently held after a hacker found a flaw in a crypto service called Wormhole, which was a contract off of Ethereum. Wormhole is a protocol that lets blockchains like Ethereum, Terra, Binance, it'll let them all interact with each other. And when you have those kind of interactions, especially with money, especially with cryptocurrency, it can be a major target. Imagine if someone just took all the available assets from a contract and moved it wherever they wanted to. And the vulnerability that was found still has proof of concept code on GitHub to this day, but the platform is no longer vulnerable to it. The long and short of it was that with this POC, a hacker could have held everything in the contract that's all the available assets and potential assets value for ransom, which, according to the GitHub, was close to $1.8 billion at the time of the submission of the report. Almost $2 billion could have been stolen. How much did that hacker get paid out? Well, he made off of a nice, cushy $10 million check. Yeah, you heard that right, $10 million. That's a once-in-a-lifetime bounty. But honestly, I do expect that as technical teams get more and more creative, and as more people take this on for side hustles or full-time jobs, we'll see more of those kind of bounties in the future. I mean, 1Password has an active call for a bounty for $1 million of a moment, and just posting things like that or of a $1 to $2 million Apple bounty kind of begets competition for people to try and break it. But I think the U.S. Department of Defense honestly said it best. Because back in 2016, the Obama administration put out a challenge to hack the Pentagon, and it lasted a month. In that time, 250 hackers went at it. 138 vulnerabilities were found, and they paid out $150,000. Which honestly seems really low right now, looking back on this, and I wonder what it would be if they paid out now. Their response to people saying that it was a high amount at the time? Well, 
it was $850,000 cheaper than doing a full security audit for $1 million. At the end of the day, one of the biggest problems that is going to face this industry is that crime pays. The big payouts are nice, but might be pennies on the dollars compared to what underground markets can offer. I feel like year after year I'm reading about underground cyber exploit markets getting taken offline, zero days being sold. The trade-off is that obviously you're building tools or selling exploits that, if they led back to you, could land you in jail. For some people in this world, that's worth the risk, but for many, in fact, I would say for the majority, thankfully, it's not. There are some people that are going to do this for fun, some that are going to do it for a job, some that might view it as a side hustle, and even some that it might make this for a full lifelong career. I think, though, if you look at the people that do want to make a career out of this, they don't necessarily always go after those whale bounties as much. And that's the last thing I want to talk about before we're done. Because a few years back, the first person to cross $1 million in total earnings came out of HackerOne. It was a 19-year-old Argentinian named Santiago Lopez that goes by the handle Mr. Hack. Lopez had, at the time, found over 1,670 vulnerabilities and crossed the $1 million mark. That's super impressive. It's an insane accomplishment. But on average, that's about $600 per payout. That's not to say that he didn't have high-level payouts, but it does at least show the merit in that finding a large amount of small vulnerabilities can add up to a nice payday for you. He was able to find vulnerabilities in sites like Uber, Yahoo, PayPal, or Airbnb. The list goes on. You can view his profile on HackerOne. As of today, a couple years later, he's got almost 2,400 vulnerabilities found. And I'm looking at some of his more recent payouts. It's just like I said, I see a $70 payout here, a $30 payout there, $250, $1,500, $2,500, $125. He's casting a wide net and he's clearly raking in a lot of money. So what do you think? Are you the next Mr. Hack? I honestly think you could be. There are tons of programs out there that offer bug bounty training. One of my favorite is Nahamsek. If you haven't heard of him, Nahamsek is a streamer and content creator as well as an educator and a great mind in the field. He's got his own convention, he's got courses and lessons that can take you from wondering how to find a bug to claiming your first reward. And that's not an ad, it's honestly just a suggestion for you to go out and look at his content because I love his content. As for me, maybe I'll give it another go at some point. I doubt I'll be as good as Santiago, but hey, couldn't hurt, right? I'm John Cordes, and thanks for listening to me explain what the shell bug bounties are and why they're pretty awesome. That's this week's episode, so thanks for listening. But before you go, as always, I have some stuff that you might be interested in. First, for anyone that's new to the show or might not know this, you can join us in the show's Discord channel to talk about it and hang out. Now that we've started back up, I am going to try to be a lot more active there so that you can reach out to me, talk to anyone else who enjoys the show, offer up suggestions that you might have because I'd love to hear them. You can find the link to join in the description below or on whattheshellpod.com. On that site, you'll also find the transcript for the episode. And should you be interested, my other socials like Instagram and Twitter, the handles for which are both at shell underscore pod. And then I do want to ask that if you like this episode, maybe leave a review or a rating on your platform of choice. It goes a little bit of a ways in terms of getting me up there in the charts so that other people can find the show as well. If that's not your thing, maybe just recommend your favorite episode to someone that you think might like it. Word of mouth is honestly my favorite way of a show has spread, and I'm hoping that that's going to continue. All right, I think I'm good for now, so I'll see you all in two weeks for the next episode. I'm going to go see if anyone found any ice in my driveway.